This is another episode of Photo Geek Weekly, episode 177, recorded on April 21st, 2023. And we're about to geek out with photo stuff news. Um, interesting stories that have come across the, the radar in the week. I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and joined with me this week is none other than my very good friend and fellow macro photographer, Stuart Wood. Stuart, it's been a while since you've been on. I think this is your now third uh, occurrence on the podcast, and it's great to have you back. How are you? Yeah, I'm great, Don. Thanks for having me back. It is my third time on here. Number three is my favorite number, so we're going to kick it off on this episode, I think, because <laughs> let's, let's hope one so. of the let's stories so. is one of the stories is very close to my heart. So <laughs> there's going to be some ranting, I, <laughs> I, and I look forward to those rants. Um, but before we get into the stories, uh, what have you been up to lately? Well, mostly, I mean, you know, I've had my ups and downs. You know, um, I've redesigned the studio gone over to the MacBook. We could talk about that in the later part of the episode. And I'm mostly just been getting used to the new change. I'm waiting for spring, and now spring is here. I'm ill, so. <laughs> it's just a lot going fun, on. It really is. Yeah, yeah and so, it's a rainy um, day there for both of us, it, so. Yeah, I mean, it's really raining. I was planning on um, going out after the podcast, get some B-roll for some upcoming videos for the YouTube channel. But I'm not risking my equipment in this rain. So I might just do the podcast and then rest of the day off. <laughs> well, I don't blame you, uh, but we got you here for this podcast. And with no hard yes. out, I have no idea how long these rants are going to take, but I'm looking forward to them, especially because there's a recurring theme of the AI stuff, which we're going to touch on. We are going to talk all the way in the other direction back to film photography um, video editing and what tools people are using more frequently and uh, a nod to people that could possibly get money out of Facebook and its parent company Meta, as well as all sorts of other banterings and side conversations that come up as they usually do. So story number one uh, is from Petapixel. Oh, actually, all the stories are from Petapixel this week. Uh, Michael Zhang, who's one of the main editors there, uh, posted something that I've seen on pretty much every platform, but Petapixel did a good job and has a follow-up on that too. Artist yep. refuses prize after his AI image wins at top photo contest. Now, let's put this into perspective here. Uh, the photo contest is the World Photography Organization's Sony World Photography Awards. So Sony is one of the big sponsors of that. And it's one of the big ones. You've probably seen it talked about on many of the photo blogs and tertiary websites around the world. Uh, and there's a big prize, you know, $5,000 and Sony camera equipment, and you get a trip to London for the award ceremony. Uh, so they make a big deal of it. And there's somewhat of a level of prestige with this. The Berlin-based, quote, photomedia artist, note that the word photographer is not being used, um, Boris Eldagsen, yep. Eldagsen, Sorry, Boris, if I'm mispronouncing your name. Um, Eldogson submitted an image called The Electrician in the creative category of the 2023 Open Competition, and he won. The picture appears to be a oh. portrait of two women captured with a photographic process from the early days of photography. But, fun twist, it's not a photograph. It is an AI-generated image, and... You know, there are signs there. The hands look weird. There's certain uh, tropes yeah, that if you studied signs. a lot of uh, artificial uh, like AI imagery, you'll notice that there's some commonalities that would stand out and be a bit peculiar to me uh, in that regard. 
But before I opine further about this, um, what, what do you think about uh, non-images winning image co- uh, competitions, what we can do about that, and what Boris did as a result of his uh, refusal to claim the prize? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we gotta we got to talk about the fact that he's, he's done this to highlight the problem and that he would like yep. an AI area uh, being made up for these competitions, which that, that's good. That needs to be done because there are some very good AI artists out there because there's a lot of misconception. People think you just type in what you want and the computer gives you what you want, and it's, it's not like that. You've really got to know your prompts for the AI to get a good image out of it. I've been playing around with it, trying to make jumping spider images, and I get some good images, but they just look like illustrations. They don't look real for me, you know? They haven't been trained well on a set of data specifically for that subject, right? Macro is, it's like, it's one of those very hard genres to do so it's going to take a while for the ai to catch up for macro but when you're talking about the process of the type of image that he has done it can actually nail the image very well and if he wants to have retouched this image in the areas that you just spoke about where you can see there's a slight issue bear with me um then you could probably get away with even tricking the the best of photographers to thinking that uh, this this image is not AI, but yeah, and and my well, my one issue of the points that it's important here. I just want to uh, sneak one thing in about having an extra category for these competitions. I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, that you can have AI generated image competitions on their own. They should be their own separate yeah. entities. And if you're dealing with a photography contest, then it, I don't think it should be a category. Uh, onto that, but something distinctly separate for its own uh, categorization of art. Yeah, they can have a separate one. They could have, um, you know, like this time of year, it could be the photo um, competition. And then maybe at the end of the summer, beginning of autumn, they could have the AI-generated world photo, well, world AI-generated competition, whatever they're going to call it, you know? I'm sure that there will yeah. be competitions um, from a number of different sources like will. this coming up in the future. Yeah, they're going to have to jump on this because it's very big and it's made this type of image creation accessible to the everyday normal person who can't paint or can't draw. They're they're able to create images. You know, it's it's like we've talked before in private. There's two pros to this whole AI thing. But what I want to discuss is why were they so slow to jump onto the fact that this image was AI? You know, they didn't well, really I think that it, well, they? there's a couple of things that I know certain competitions do uh, that try to verify the credibility yeah. of the submissions. Uh, I've submitted my images to the close-up photographer uh, of the year competition, and they're I think in their fourth or their fifth year. I think it's fifth. Mm-hmm. And one of my images got uh, yeah, not not a major award of you know some sort of distinction was granted to it, but they asked me specifically for a raw file from that image. Yeah. And it was the only one that uh, was above the level of the shortlist. So I sent them high resolution shortlist images. And there was, I think, a half dozen or so images that made that. One of them made a higher cut. And they verified that if they're going to put anything with an award on it, 
get the raw data, verify that that is a real image before you're allowed to move forward. And I think most photographic yeah. competitions should do that in the case of this being film. Agreed. Um, ask the guy to hold up the original film negative and, you know, frame a picture. It's like, hey, yeah, it's real. You know, this is, and yes, that too can be faked. Uh, but there has to be at least some level of verification for this. But what really gets me is what the uh, SWPA, the Sony World Photography um, uh, Awards did, is they, they didn't allow him to talk on stage, but he snuck onto the stage himself uh, yeah. and he voiced his distress about, uh, about this particular scenario. And um, he said, as I have never been to a uh, SWPA award ceremony, I expected to have a short moment on stage as an open competition category winner, the artist explains, but I didn't. He continues, they only asked the overall open competition winner on stage, and then they had a dinner break. After dinner break, uh, before the second part of the show started, I went straight to the host, told her that my image was selected as a winner for the creative category slash open competition. Uh, and if I could say something, he continues, as she was taken by surprise, I did it anyhow. That's it. No response. The second part started. The show must go on. Uh, I stayed until the end. Nobody from SWPA or CREO uh, approached me. No one was interested in communicating with me. And then it gets uh, uh, problematic because his image was on display during a press preview before the event. And it was there. There's a picture of somebody pointing to it. It's great. But then a different photograph replaced his image after he crashed the ceremony. And yeah. that is bad form, folks. You don't try to like cover this up because that is the Streisand effect. I'm going to be talking about that the more you try to cover yeah. this up. Exactly. This is what I'm saying. How come they haven't really dealt with the issue properly? You know, I mean, they they're hoping that people will it. stop talking about it and then it's going to go away. No, but uh, you <clears> know, th this is really hurting the credibility, and there needs to be a formal statement. Yeah. Um, and there was a follow-up article from I think yesterday that was uh, published where um, uh, British uh, television personality um, Adrian Chillis, Chillies, I'm not sure how you pronounce these names, um, penned an article in The Guardian this morning decrying in this era of AI photography, I no longer believe my eyes. And uh, he continues on, and there's a couple of salient points, but really what he says is, uh, what I do know is that before long, we won't know anything for sure. And he continues... As it stands, uh, however good a fake might be, you can still just about tell it's a fake, but only just. Sooner rather than later, the joins will disappear. We might even have already passed that point without knowing it. If the judges of the Sony World Photography Awards couldn't spot the fake, what are the chances that the rest of us have got? And so this is, I mean, that's exactly. key because this is just getting better and better. And I, I have another interesting uh, case <coughs> in point. I've got a can of beer here, and this was in a, a, a variety pack that I got at uh, the local grocery store recently, and I didn't even notice what it was at first, but it is called Fat Robot AI Generated Lager. I'm going to read you the back of this thing here. It says, <laughs> February 2023, we'll all probably be out of a job soon. Here, for example, we made this beer with the help of AI. We asked it, and it gave us the recipe. Then it made the communication strategy proofread this text and wrote the social media posts. Even the label design was generated by AI. 
Soon, it will, uh, it will brew without us, but AI will never be able to replace us in the enjoyment of beer, and cheers to that. So, it's everywhere, man. Uh, how many people got put it out of a everywhere. job when that, yeah, <laughs> when that was branded? Exactly. Um, it's some scary stuff. I've been looking at it this morning about the AI and stuff like that, and there's that many photographers on YouTube that are panicking because AI can simply replace what they're doing, particularly product photography. Um, yep. You know, you can type into an AI generator that you want this product placed in any type of scenario, and it will do it for you. You haven't got to now hire an expensive product photographer to go out and, and, and do your uh, product photography for your particular product. You know, it's some scary stuff. Yep. People are being made redundant. People are losing their jobs over this AI, which... Let's be honest with you. Once you've learned the prompts, anyone can do it. You know, I've done uh, a number of uh, product photography jobs in the past. I don't know how many of them I mm-hmm. will get in the future. You're right. That part of my business. Well, let's, have let's talk about this for an example. Snowflakes. Yep. Have, have, have you tried generating snowflakes in AI yet? I, I haven't. Uh, I, I'd be possibly afraid of what it might come up with because <laughs> yeah. it's it's based on a, uh, a known quality of, of physics and geometric patterns and so on. It is yeah. infinitely more complex than a simple image might be able to generate. And the value of my images is that they are real. And it's not yes. just that it's a yeah. photograph of a snowflake. Hey, take a look at the snowflake. The value is that this was a real creation of nature that fell to the earth mm-hmm. and I'm not lying about it. And yeah. uh, I, I have enough of a pedigree with that particular subject that people are going to believe me that it's real. And I'm not going to sully that exactly. by going out and generating fake ones. Uh, however, my point is this. A company wants a snowflake for um, a product of some type. At what point... Does the company want a real snowflake and paying you as the artist who's created that image over banging an AI um, generated image out within five minutes? Do you know what I mean? How? I, I how, think that you make how, a very good point. How, is that real, how much could I How real is the real one going to be? Yeah. How, the, how the real is can to... the real one be to the average person looking at the product? Though if it's for then, a product um, packaging design, yeah. uh, which I, I might have had one or two licenses for in the past, that's not a big market for for the snowflakes. But uh, I think that yeah, that that that's going to disappear. Uh, but so yeah. too of any photograph of a particular insect. Say you mm-hmm. want to uh, advertise some bug repellent. And you want to get yes. an image of a mosquito uh, in a particular, whether it's on a, an arm or on a leaf or what have you, with the product spraying at that mosquito, you can prompt an AI generator to do exactly that. And yeah. it's not just the snowflakes. There's a lot of subjects that, whether or not is real, doesn't matter to sell the product and thereby uh, an actual image is not going to be created. Yeah, the, the, uh, this whole AI thing, it's going to really shake up the landscape. And all I've got to say is to... Uh, stock photography artists you might want to look for another job because i can't see people um you know a lot like companies paying for stock photography when they can just generate it and the stock photography uh, sites all also have ai images why would someone pay for your ai image when they can generate it themselves anyway 
Do you know what I mean? Well, this is a good point too. It's, it's scary. Uh, I, I think that they're trying to to adapt in a knee jerk way yeah. to try and and have some sort of reaction to uh, what the market is doing. But I, I think that the ship sailed on uh, stock photography, unless it's very yeah. specific stock photography. I'm talking with a company right now that's working on a documentary film, and they are uh, looking through some of my back catalog of video footage for that particular use. And yes, video footage of similar things is available on stock photography. It cannot be AI generated based on the uh, ethics of the final product. And thereby, yeah. there is still some, you know, oasis of uh, a possibility there, but it's, but it's getting smaller. That's a yeah. tiny little island, and not it many is. people can, uh, can can fit on it. So we'll we'll see what goes on in the future. Um, but the future it's scary, is scary though. Uncertain, Sorry. yeah, yeah. It's scary how quickly it's developing. Though it was only a few months ago that you could easily go, "Oh, that's AI. That's AI. That's AI." Now I'm having to look in descriptions to find out if something's AI. You know, and that's if I the saw a hilarious video. I saw a hilarious video, AI generated and obviously fake. Um, of uh, you know, you can prompt. I, I forget exactly what uh, AI engine had created it, but it was uh, Will Smith eating spaghetti. And then I saw another one that was Conan O'Brien uh, eating fried chicken, then crashing his car. That was the prompt. Yeah, and. It, it's obviously uh, getting the caricature of the person you're referencing right. And it's not, it's, you can tell very clearly it's not real. But two years from now, five years from now, would you be able to make exactly. anybody appear to be doing anything? Uh, interesting times. Yeah. Interesting times. I mean, funny enough, I, I mean, most of the things I see online, I never believe half of it anyway, because you, you could already do this type of stuff. It was just hard to do. You had to have skills. Now you don't need the skill. You know, you just yeah. simply AI gets to do it for you. Well, okay, Scary. that's. I think that's enough doom and gloom for for one episode. No, I don't know. I, don't of, know. I might get the, the AI take over my YouTube channel. <laughs> it might do a better job. <laughs> <laughs> but you you could use the AI to generate uh, the SEO and the hashtags yep. and the prompts and the I titles. Can, I can and even the, get even the video thumbnails. Yeah, I can even get AI to generate the script if I wanted to do a talking head script. And all I've got to do is literally put the B-roll on top of it of what he's talking about. So I can go into the AI, go, um, write a script for a YouTube video as an introduction to macro photography, and it'll write the whole thing for me. Expect that coming up in a few months. <laughs> yeah. I would expect quite yeah, a Do that as an experiment. Yeah. And, and, I mean, tell people that, you know, the script was AI yeah. at some point during yeah. it. But... Uh, it would be a, an interesting experiment to see what would happen. Yeah, I might do that. Let's, do let's that go in a, in a different and, direction now. I, I want to yeah, go on to go. the next story. <laughs> it would be all day uh, of waste talking about AI. Exactly. So uh, th this one, I, I don't expect we'll take too much time on, but there's some interesting possibilities. The main Kodak film business is up for sale again. So Kodak Alaris was the, uh, the branch of Kodak that was in charge of manufacturing film uh, uh, from the uh, well-known Eastman Kodak company. Uh, it's potentially going to be sold by its owner. And this kind of surprised me. I didn't realize that Kodak Alaris was owned or currently is owned by the UK's Pension Protection Fund. Interesting connection there. Well. Turns out that during the bankruptcy in 2012, Kodak had owed um, the UK Kodak pension plan $2.8 billion at the time. So as part of the bankruptcy agreement, uh, the UK's Pension Protection Fund now owns Kodak Alaris. Um, 
unusual parent uh, for that company to be under, but that's just how it all shook out. And I'm sure that over the pandemic years, uh, at uh, 2020, 2022, uh, that range it might not have been all that profitable. So, but uh, mm. they did post recently that there was a 29% increase in revenue. And so if this is a company that is rebounding a little bit, it looks good on paper to anybody that might be buying it to have an asset that is potentially going to be growing. But who is going to be in the market to buy Kodak? I don't know. It could be another photography company. Um, you know, you look at Ilford and they make black and white film. They don't touch the color stuff. But how much yeah. cash at hand do they have for any potential purchase? I'm not sure where this would go. I really hope it goes somewhere because we can't lose more film companies at this point in the game. Yeah. Um, I don't know who, where it would go, to be honest with you. I mean, it'd have to be, maybe it'd be a big company, Sony. we got Nikon, Can, maybe they might be interested and then they could re-release a classic film camera. What's that classic Nikon one that everyone always wanted? I can't remember the name of it. It was a film camera. Oh, there was, was a lot of really solid. Nice. Yeah, and the it was an absolute Nikon, beast. Uh, F3, maybe? I can't. It could be something like I'm that. I'm not certain. Yeah. I don't well, know my old Nikons that well. I've got a whole box full of old Canon cameras, but not a single yeah. Nikon in that collection. But yeah, okay. Um, Who yeah, benefits so, then from, from the sale of a film? Uh, could be the chemical manufacturers, and I really don't know who their parents are. It could be a company like Leica that wants to keep the allure of film alive. And I believe Leica yeah. has produced at least one film camera in the last little while. Or Ricoh that um, owns Pentax. That might be a potential uh, viable you know, company. Uh, but all of this is just guessing. I have no idea yeah. who would be able to step up and, and take over Kodak Alaris or what um, they're asking and, for. And yeah, and if someone does take over, will it be profitable or will it just go downhill again and get sold again, you know? I mean, do, do you know anybody who's using film? I, I don't personally. I, I have, I uh, I've got film in my, in my drawer right here. In fact, what have I got? I have got go on, let's have a, a package of Kodak Ektar, uh, Ektar 100. This is in the uh, 120 medium format size. Got a whole box of this stuff. This stuff is worth its weight in gold right now. Um, and so do I know anybody... Yes, not me, because that box is still full, and I've had that box for over a year. Uh, and so it's it's my intent to use it. I hope it's not expired yet. It's expired. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, but it's still good. It's still good. I got, I got fond uh, memories of film. I, I mean, I, I mean, when you asked me generally when did I start photography, it was 2006, right? But I did dabble with film back in my school days, and I do actually distinctly remember taking a macro shot on film back in, I'm mean, you're talking 92, something like that. Now you've got to remember I'm a child, so don't crucify me. Okay. But I was trying to take a picture of, of ants and we put an extension tube onto um, my brother's film camera. Now I can't remember the make of it. It was, wasn't one of the popular makes, but in order to get the can to stick, sit still, I squished it one. <laughs> As <laughs> children wouldn't keep would still. Do, yeah. <laughs> children do so uh, somewhere in my mom's um house there's a box full of uh photos hopefully still there and one of them is of, is of a dead ant 
I yeah. I will admit to my childhood crimes uh, as burning ants with magnifying glasses as well. I didn't realize oh, how torturous. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, I I now have a, a queen ant in a formicarium sitting on my desk and I take very good care. Hasn't produced any uh, uh, any offspring yet. And I think Stuart's got the same. So we have changed, you know, don't judge us by mm-hmm. our pasts, judge us by what we do yeah. now, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but I, I want to take a look at uh, at where the, the film space is going. If it has the chops to continue, yes, there's still exactly. some motion pictures that are shot on film, but that number is getting increasingly smaller. The cost of film has gone up quite a bit, which is deterring mm-hmm. a lot of people, even though the sales seem to still be there. Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'll have to buy a chest freezer and, and hoard film for the, the decades to come. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. But Kodak Alaris is for sale yeah and that's about all we can say on anyone want to buy it yeah hey you know let me know maybe maybe uh there could be like a a, a pitch in everybody throws some money in the pot and formulates a, a new company kickstart a campaign purchase of it <laughs> could do yeah. something could do something um all right so final or not the final there's one more after this uh but this is the story that i really wanted your opinions on uh Stuart, because i know mm-hmm. you do a lot of uh video editing you've got your youtube channel and uh, I, I found this curious because as I read through this article, it was kind of uh, countering the title of the article itself. Title is, right. Why Video Editors Are Switching to DaVinci Resolve in Droves. And then it you know, carries on and says in one paragraph that the echo chamber isn't entirely accurate, as they never are, as much of the chatter uh, comprises people trend jacking for views. So I guess that this transition to DaVinci Resolve is trending and people are creating videos saying, hey, I'm moving over to DaVinci Resolve too, even though that maybe not everybody is. But what do you use and why do you use it? I use DaVinci Resolve. And I use it because (laughs) it doesn't crash. It's as simple as that. Um, I am an absolute big fanboy of Adobe Premiere. I learnt on it. I learnt on, I think it was the first uh, Premiere Pro when it first came out. I love it. Absolutely love it. And when I was tinkering around with videos, well, that's my number one program that I went to. I then started YouTube. I then started paying for my Adobe subscription. And that's when things kind of change is when you're forking out money for stuff because previously i took to the high seas you know get a little free version of it (laughs) and uh, you don't really moan and um i had some issues with it and i went to the forums and like well if you've got you know a pirated version it's going to crash out so i'll buy the proper version and it still crashed out and this is one of the main reasons people are switching um I switched because the, the, well, I, I distinctly remember the week I switched to DaVinci. I did a YouTube video. I was editing it. And typically, I have a couple of tracks of video. So I've got my talking head video. Above there, I have my overhead camera. And then above there, I have my B-roll of whatever it is I'm talking about. If I'm talking about a lens, I film B-roll with a lens. That goes on top of the video. And that's what you see in the video. So you're talking three tracks minimum. And in one afternoon, Premiere crashed out three times in one hour. All different reasons as to why it crashed out. I, I've and had it crash because my computer went to sleep. 
and it wakes up and the entire project that I was working on, thankfully it had saved uh, uh, an interim version of it behind the scenes and I didn't lose too much, but I had gotten up to go and shoot some B-roll for something. Yeah. And I came back, the computer had fallen asleep, and when it awoken, everything was uh, was not okay, Adobe. Yeah. So, well, so I, I get it that these we, are complex we, systems, though. Yeah. Right? You know, yeah. and, and so yeah. with Premiere, you've got a lot of baggage and legacy that has to come through, and then you've got to modify that baggage to, you know, be processed on a GPU versus the CPU and have everything kind of oh. layer upon layer on top of itself, and that's where you have problems that arise. It's not a, yeah. a valid excuse. It's just how it happens. Nope. And and when <laughs> when you have DaVinci uh, come in, which is obviously newer uh, because uh, Adobe Premiere has been around for a long time. And while they have probably done some massive that's, overhauls behind the scenes. That's probably I, part of the problem. I'll yeah. be honest with you. And I'll get on to that in a minute, but sorry to interrupt you. Um, we need to talk about the history, though. We've got to understand where people are coming from. A lot of the people are coming from Final Cut. Uh, I believe it's when Final Cut, I think it was 10, was released, they butchered the software and a lot of video editors, particularly on the Mac systems, were very upset. So they, they took out a lot of a really new... power user features, right? It did, they made yeah. it for uh, uh, for the average person to yeah, get the most out basically. of it. But the power users, yeah, they didn't want those they, changes. They did not like it. They didn't like it. So they all went over to Premiere. And this is where I'll, I'll get back to my statement about... Um, it being old, you know, an old piece of software is probably what's the problem. Now, um, one of the bugs I had was um, I would lose my waveforms on the timeline. Now, I don't know about you when you do editing, but when I edit, I edit to the waveform. When I make a mistake, like if I was to make a mistake now, I would pause. There'd be a gap in the waveform, and I can see that on my timeline, and I can edit exactly where and cut exactly where I need right. to cut to put it all together. So when you lose your waveforms you're like, well, I'm kind of blind, yeah? But my issue was this. That bug was in there for three years. It's not wow. like they fixed that bug and then a new bug come along. That I could kind of put up with. It's annoying, but I could kind of put up with it. But when you're working with the same bug after three years, enough is enough. Do you know what I mean? And this is what a lot of people are saying, that uh, the bugs they're having in Premiere are just not getting fixed. You know, they're releasing new features. You've got all this new AI stuff coming in there. You've got all this um, AI audio cleanup that they're adding, but they're not going back and fixing these little bugs that stop you being creative. And if that's you, when if I'll you were new I, to photography hmm. or videography, but I'm going to use photography as a, as a parallel here. Yeah. If you're brand new to the photographic space, you don't have any knowledge of editors at all. Um, would you use... Uh, Capture One, Luminar, um, On One Photo Raw, or Photoshop, right? What are you going to go to first? Throw Lightroom into the mix too. But really, I just wanted to yeah. highlight the fact that Photoshop is, there's no argument that it is the most complicated uh, and encumbered from past technologies tool on the market today. Well, maybe Corel Draw is there as well, but you know those old tools—they're harder to learn because of the baggage they bring with them. The newer ones yeah. use more intuitive interfaces, and they can break the mold of what the old used to be. And it's easier for new people that have no knowledge of how to work with any of the old mm -hmm. software can adapt themselves into this new, more intuitive environment that just flows yeah. better from a basic learning standpoint. Exactly. Now. Um when I switched 
I put that video out, uh, the, the one where it crashed out several times, Jim, and I put that out on a Thursday. I then made the uh, decision to skip next week's video and learn DaVinci. I downloaded it Friday at 11 o'clock. I was fully transitioned by 6 o'clock that day. That so it, it took you seven hours. And seven hours to, to transfer everything over. And I'm not talking about just learning the interface. I learn the interface as I go along. You know, If I come across an edit I'm doing, I'm like, oh, I don't know how to do this. I'll learn it. It's mostly getting all my intro over um, because they was all based on Premiere um, graphic files. So they're not actually pre-rendered. Then you can go in there, you can right. change the titles and all that. So I have to transfer all that over, get over my, um, all my lower thirds and all that stuff. Yeah, it took me just a couple of hours to learn DaVinci. Now, granted, I already knew editing software from learning Premiere. But let me put this into a perspective for anyone who's out there who's new to video editing. you got on the left side is Adobe Premiere, which to get it, you have to pay a minimum of £20 a month for that. If you have the whole creative suite, it's something like 50 to 55 pound per month, and it will crash out on a regular basis. And then on the right-hand side, you've got DaVinci Resolve that is free and doesn't crash out. And the other point I wanted to make out as well is with DaVinci, you've got a feature called Live Save, which every time you click a button or awesome it, it saves the project. You don't even see any slowdown with it saving. But if, for instance, it was to crash out, you load it back up into the exact same position you was when it crashed. So left, £50 a month, crashing software. On the right-hand side, you got a free piece of software that's a professional piece of software for free. Which one do you go for? Exactly. I couldn't have said it better myself. So if you are looking for video uh, in the future, it's one less reason why I uh, need to depend on the Adobe Creative Suite. I still have the full package that has everything, but uh, I don't think that if I was to do a big project, a big video project, I would would use um, uh, DaVinci Resolve I'd use that project, forgive me for uh, saying my words backwards. I'd use that project as a reason to learn DaVinci Resolve. And then that would, I only load up Premiere right now to put together cuts of samplers that go out to uh, documentary people that I'm shooting some various little bits and pieces for because I'm doing a lot of that work remotely. I've got to send them some samplers of the footage that I'm grabbing to get some direction because their shot list changes over time based on what I provide them and what is, uh, you know, what might be possible or what might not be possible based on what they see. And that's the only use that I really have of Premiere right now. And I don't think I'm going to use it for anything else because it's just, like you said, Mm. buggy, old and expensive. Yeah. Now, I mean, since I made the switch, I've gone over to the, to the Mac operating system, so I haven't tried it on the Mac. But when I was looking at the article, I realized a lot of these creators that are switching to DaVinci are on Mac. So the one of the excuses someone told me was it's because you're on Windows, it's less it's less stable on Windows, and obviously that's that can't be true if all these creators are switching over to DaVinci. Uh, well, let's talk about why this for, for a second. Like uh, because hmm? you you recently switched from a PC and you know you've you've been custom building PCs for years, many many years. Yeah. Um, and you've just made the switch in uh, utter disgust, frustration and just you yeah. you basically threw in the towel. Uh, and bought yeah. aim and, and bought a Mac. Uh, how's that transition been for you? Probably uh, the very easiest transition I've ever made because 
it just works. You ask it to do something, it does it. I'm working on a, a video from my YouTube channel as to it's going to be like, you know, why I switched to the Mac. And I would love to have some bad points on there, but so far I've not found any. You know, from a creative... Battery life is good, performance is good. Yeah. Battery life is good, performance is good. Um, I did a big project and I only... Uh, well, let's talk about the MacBook before I say that. So I'm using a, um, a refurbished MacBook 14-inch M1 Max with 32 cores in there. It's got 64 gig of memory and a two terabyte hard drive. And I did this big project, which is for um, my YouTube and that, and I only use 60% of the resources. So it's got the overhead, considering it's a laptop. It does. <laughs> you know? and well, and of course, and, the uh, um, M2s are better whenever yeah. the M3s or whatever replaces that. It's, it's, it's It'll a It'll just keep getting target. better. It'll it's just get better. Be... But for me, I even it's not at, the power. Uh, it's, sorry? Yeah, no, continue. Yeah. It's not the power. It's the stability, yeah. right? Yeah, it's the stability. It's the software that's on it. Apple limit you from doing certain stuff. You can't really um, configure it like you would do a Windows machine. And a lot of people don't like it. It's the same as on uh, Android phones. You can't jailbreak or sideload software. And the reason why that's there is because that's what makes it stable. You know, case in point, right? And, uh, I'm, you the viewers can't see this, but I'm pointing over to my desk. I've got a Wacom tablet over there, and um, it's never worked from day one. You load it up into Photoshop, and the pressure sensitivity is just gone, and you have to create a configuration file, a custom configuration file that you have to put into Photoshop to make Photoshop recognize that you've got a Wacom tablet and the pressure sensitivity has to work. <laughs> I'm just like, are you talking? This is, this is Wacom. That's this frustrating. Is now, I was about to sell it on eBay. I thought, you know what? I'm just going to test it on the MacBook. Put the drivers on. Bang. First time. Straight away. Works perfect. No configuration. No hassle. I was about to swear. <laughs> no hassle. Uh, it just works. And that is basically all my video is about. It works. You know? And from well, a creative I'm point of view, that's user what I want. For, I'm an iPhone user for security as well. And Apple is one of the most secure companies uh, on on the planet, every piece of software has bugs and security exploits, but Apple seems to be the best at fixing them as quickly as possible. Mm. I'm currently uh, using a Surface Laptop Studio, uh, Windows machine, the best machine that Microsoft would offer. It is a turtle compared to your rabbit of a Mac in terms of speed mm. and, and functionality. And even when I was looking at some of the higher end uh, machines, you know, Razer has their Razer Blade uh, laptop line, which is one of the, the top ends of what you can configure into a laptop. And I looked at what you could put into one versus uh, what Apple has in the newest crop of uh, the uh, M2 Max, and no comparison. The, uh, Apple wins hands down. And so I yeah. think uh, I think that might be what I gravitate towards the next time. And I hope this laptop lasts me for a few years still. I, I don't like to refresh my oh, technology yeah. Yeah. too quickly. But uh, when it does come time that it's no longer able to keep up with things, I'm going to look into the Apple space. Yeah. So going back to uh, the, you know, the story of uh, creatives leaving, and I want to address Adobe directly. Now, I don't think they'll be listening, but if they do, have a listen to this, right? Da Vinci has... Bugs. Like you said, all software have bugs. I had a bug um, several months ago where every time there's a cut on a timeline, you'd hear a, a click with the audio, a click, click, click. Two days it took them to fix that. I'm still waiting three years for them to fix the bug that I had in Premiere. 
Do you know what I mean? So I love I'm when not, software I'm companies not, are responsive. Yeah. I'm not going to go on the way to say that Da Vinci is bug free. It's not bug free. It has its issues, um, you know, but they get fixed. And that's what convinced me to stay with Da Vinci because I was really faithful to Premiere. I held out for a long time and the bugs just kept coming and coming and coming. And in the end, I just caved in and I had to switch to Da Vinci. And Da Vinci also, they, they have a paid version, which is called Da Vinci Studio. And you only pay a one time fee for that. You're not subscription based as well. That's another reason why these creatives are looking at DaVinci. You know, that you're getting a world class leaning piece of software for one payment and you know, you versus that compared to the buggy Adobe stuff that you have to pay for. You know, it's, it's I think that the studio software uh, I, I would need to use that if I was to be processing uh, raw video footage and things like that. There's certain features that they yeah. keep behind that paywall. But yeah, exactly. uh, for the average user, it's 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 not the necessary user, if you're just yeah. If you're doing YouTube, you don't need the studio version because unless you're doing like high end edits with all this noise reduction and blurs and stuff like that, you don't need it. Not not for YouTube, you know. Right. But well, again, where can people find one, your YouTube channel one. and and what's there? If you go to YouTube, you can type in uh, Stuart Wood, you'll find me there. Or you can use the at Stuart Wood Art in the YouTube search bar, and it'll come up with my channel. And, uh, yeah. S-T-E-W. S-T-E-W. Stuart, not Stuart. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So but, um, uh, good yeah. for that plug. And I really encourage people to go and check out uh, the content that you produce. There's some great videos mm. there. Uh, you're, uh, you're, you're a very uh, humble and informative teacher when you're showing people yeah. how to do certain things. And, and I love the, uh, the, the style and as that comes across, which be, is nice. Before we leave that particular um, article, all I'll say is if you're on the fence about trying Da Vinci, just try it. It's free. You're not going to lose nothing. Uh, yeah, you'll lose some time, but hey, we, we have... We waste our time on so many different things these days. Anyhow, that's a good thing to waste your time on. Um, yeah, definitely. And and what it might not amount to much for a lot of people, and it doesn't apply to, to Stuart or myself who are not Americans, but this story came across my radar. And, and it does uh, possibly lend into a greater conversation about social media in general is uh, the title is, Do You Use Facebook? Meta May Owe You Money. And this has to do with a class action lawsuit um, that has uh, everything to do with basically taking your uh, privacy for granted on the platform. There is a two, uh, sorry, a $725 million settlement, uh, quote, to avoid the costs and risks of a trial. And what's this about? Uh, Stuart, do you remember Cambridge Analytica? I don't, unfortunately. So sure this is during, uh, yeah, so this is, uh, there was a big scandal uh, where Cambridge Analytica, which is a data mining firm, they used mm -hmm. the, uh, uh, that was used by the Donald Trump presidential campaign. They had taken data from up to 87 million Facebook users via a personality quiz in order to target voters. So this was in <laughs> gross violation of the Facebook terms and it's, uh, it basically did the company under Cambridge, uh, Cambridge Analytica, and now Facebook yeah. is facing this lawsuit. But because it's a class action, anybody that has used Facebook that's American between May 24th of 2007 and December 22nd of 2022, 
You can, uh, the link is here in, uh, in the article on Petapixel. I tried to plug in my address, but I'm not American, so it wouldn't let that go through. Uh, just for those of nope. you in the US, sign up for this. Uh, you're probably not going to get a lot, uh, but not everybody is going to sign up for it. So you'll get a chunk of that $725 million settlement by putting your name in uh, in there, which is so ironic because this is about you providing um, unknowingly just information about yourself and violating your privacy. And in order to uh, to redeem yourself, you now have to go and fill out a form with all of your personal private details to join the class action lawsuit. It seems somewhat <sighs> ironic. But let's talk about social oh, media. I that all my earbuds fell out. <laughs> <laughs> In social oh media, we've got this, this world where we are the product. And I think we all have to realize that, where yeah. uh, if you're using the platform and you're not paying for it, then you are the point of monetization at the end of the day. And that's true of pretty much every platform. Where, Stuart, do you find the greatest... Uh, audience engagement on social media for, for me i i've got a big audience on facebook so they tend to still interact but it definitely is a um a, an older skewed demographic yeah my, my biggest audience is on youtube um but yeah um instagram that, that was pretty good for getting uh, reactions but the the problem with youtube is the most of the reactions you get is if you make a mistake <laughs> people love to point uh, out mistakes have, have in you, videos. <laughs> have, you, have you thought of intentionally putting mistakes in in order to I've, I've done a couple. engagement I've actually, yeah I've actually done a couple yeah it actually and, it, and I'm afraid and ashamed to say this it works ah <laughs> uh, human psychology um, is very fragile yeah you can put together the, the perfect video that's technically accurate and it won't get as much engagement as one that's got a mistake in it you can do a spelling well, mistake or misquote something and they'll all be in the comments telling you because they want to be helpful and that's very great. But every single comment boosts engagement of that particular video. Therefore, they push the video even more. Yeah, now, I'm not saying go and do that on purpose, but you know, from time to time, I might make a slight mistake. Well, you make the mistake and say, yeah, you know, let's just leave it in there. Uh, that's okay. Yeah, doesn't yeah. doesn't need to be Most fixed. Most of the time. The people in the comments yeah. will correct me. <laughs> Most of the time, it's it, it could be a mistake that I've done that can't be fixed with either B-roll or voiceover. And I'll just go, you know what? You know what I was talking about. <laughs> just leave it in there. Yeah. 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 You know, there's a couple it's, of famous um, quotes that uh, that I, like even when I was writing my book, I, I, I put a couple of quotes here and there. And uh, I, I made a, a clear point to state that, yeah, this particular quote is often miscredited to this man when substantially the identical thing was said by this guy 50 years earlier. And that's the version of that that we're going to go to. Uh, and yeah. so <laughs> it's it's like it's like the quote from Star Trek, beam me up, Scotty. It was never actually said in the show. And when you say that to a, a true Trekkie, they they love to correct you on that one. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, you'll like, have all Darth kinds Vader of never that was said, never said. I am your father. Right? Exactly, exactly. But we remember it like that, though, don't we? We do. You know? We do. Yeah. Um, but but let's, I would be, uh, let's get uh, I'd, into I'd, our I'd, picks yeah. of the week before we uh, run out of time for this particular episode. Yeah, was there yeah. another comment you had on on the last story? I was, about to, I was about to say that I'd be interested to see how much uh, a, a certain individual would get if they did claim on this um, this Facebook thing. That would be interesting to see how much they actually get. The only one that you know? really wins on those is the lawyer. 
Um, exactly. They're, they're, they're going to take the truckload of money of their part of it and everybody's going to get the scraps that's left over. But yeah, if anybody does get in on that, let me know what uh, what they cut you a check for. We'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll follow up with that when the time comes. Uh, and who knows how long that'll be. So <clears throat> picks of the week. Uh, Stuart, you don't actually have a link for me, but you sent me a whole bunch of pictures of a DIY project that you're working on. And it's something that most people might have the ingredients to do themselves. Yeah. I I would say if we talk about yours first, because then mine can lead on to that. It's kind of the same type of subject about lighting. So my yes. uh, subject, I got to tighten this thing up here. Um, this, uh, and nobody can see me, but Stuart, I'm holding up a circular mirror that uh, might be twice the diameter of a quarter. And it is on a little swivel handle that telescopes up. And it's a first surface mirror used for inspecting things. You can buy these in kits. I found one on Amazon. You get three of them in different shapes for just over $13 US. Why is this useful? Well, because it's got this handle, I can easily put this into a, like a, a mini super clamp or another word for a crab clamp and hold that in place for uh, photographic um, lighting. Imagine that Ooh. you have a, a macro studio setup and you've got a light uh, on one side and you don't have another light for the other side or you just want to put a little bit of extra fill in there. That's where this mirror comes in very handy because you can redirect the light back. This is also helpful, not just for regular lights, but ultraviolet photography. If you're doing ultraviolet fluorescence and you need more light to be bouncing back at your subject, a mirror is going to bounce ultraviolet light just as it would anything else. And this can help you fill in the shadows, which you can't do in that scenario by using a diffuser because the diffuser itself would likely fluoresce. So these little um, handheld mirrors, and it's helpful that you, you can get ones that are first surface you can get some that aren't. The first surface ones are like cool. a, a dentist mirror. Um, and yep. that's where the reflective surface is on top of the glass, not on the bottom of it. And it makes it more fragile as a result. I can't tell which one I'm linking to in uh, in the Amazon quick article because I don't actually own those ones. And oftentimes it's not said what side the reflective surface is on. But if it is on the surface closest to the air and not on the back, then it works as a wonderful stage to place your subject on and to get a really Mm -hmm. nice reflection of that subject without having a double reflection, one from the mirror and one from the glass. Which is very irritating. (laughs) It it is irritating. It is. So these, these mirrors are really helpful and really inexpensive. And if you've got a macro photography studio or any, uh, you know, close-up work that you do. They're very compact, and I would keep one of these in my camera bag pretty much at all times from now on. Uh, So just a fun little lighting gadget that's not marketed to photographers. If it was, it would cost a heck of a lot more than $13, uh, as photography equipment always has a premium on it. So get some of them, and let me know what you think when you do. Stuart, what do you got? So yeah, uh, staying with the subject of lighting. So um, I know the viewers can't see this, but I know you can see me. I'm using a um, a Relight Ninja 402 here with a softbox here. I mean, the softbox alone costs uh, quite a bit of money because we all know light is key when you're doing any type of photography or videography work. Now, that wasn't always the case. When I started off on my YouTube channel, I started off on a budget. I had a little light, I'd say about... Uh, eight inches, I'd say it is, uh, off Amazon, really budget-friendly. And that's what gets me onto my pick 
for this episode, and that is old TVs and monitors. Now, the LCD TV, as you know, they are LED backlit. When you strip down a TV or a monitor, there's only one strip of LEDs in most of the common forms of LED backlit TVs. And how they get the light is through three layers of surface that's between the light and the LCD panel. And that's what you want. That's the target that you're after. Now, I've emailed Dom some pictures that you can put up onto the website. If you are interested in this more, you can go and take a look at this. And every broken LCD TV or um, monitor I have, I strip these out because they are absolutely fantastic as a diffusion material. They are fantastic because... Uh, one layer, I don't, I, I don't know the actual scientific lay, uh, names for these layers, but one layer is a diffusion layer. One of the other layers is like a light focusing layer. So your, your LEDs are typically at the top of the TV. They come down and then they bounce through these layers and they focus the light towards the LCD, which lights up your TV. And it does the same thing for light for macro videography. You can create soft, beautiful lighting at a fraction of a cost because you're just using these sheets that you get out of these TVs and they're absolutely fantastic. Now, as you know, I've been doing this several years and I'm still stripping these layers out of TVs because they are a great diffusion material. I don't know if you've tried it yourself. Have you Have you tried? I haven't. No. Well, I, I, I mean, no? I, my Asus ProArt monitors tend to last a while and when they break, I, I, would, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't really want but, to be tearing uh, something like that apart. Yeah. If I could possibly generally, get if, it if you go on Facebook, yeah. If you go on Facebook, you, you, generally you can find a, a broken forty-two-inch TV for twenty pounds or something like that. I see that as a forty-two-inch diffuser for any type of light, you know. So I, I put the sheets together, I gaffer tape around the edges, and in the examples I've showed you, that's actually um, the background of my B-roll that I've been using. I have a light behind it. These, these panels focus the light straight through. They diffuse it, and it just looks beautiful. And what I was doing and in the early days... kudos to recycling, days, because that would go yes. to a landfill. <laughs> and, uh, you know, yes, you can recycle the electronics, uh, and you can take the gold out of that, and there's people that do mm-hmm. that type of stuff. But those um, the, the parts of the LCD Oops. panel itself that you're using would never be recycled yeah. any other way. Exactly. And uh, the, the, the quality of the light that comes out of it is, is, is beautiful. You know, I mean, you've, you've, you've probably used tracing paper before in the past. It's better yep. than tracing paper for diffusing the light. And it's, like I said, it's really budget friendly. So if you're just starting out and you're getting into macro videography, take a look at some old TVs, take those diffusion panels out, put them in between your light and your subject, and you can get beautiful, beautiful light. And I'm actually looking for another TV. I'm not going to look at my, uh, my TV over there. I might replace that soon because I want to develop uh, the diffuser I use on my YouTube channel, I want to make that out of that material. And I'm going to have How a go at is that material? that It's very flexible. You can literally just fold it. It's like tracing paper. So like I could, I could fold it into like a semicircle and yes. then have that as a yeah. diffuser completely encompassing a subject that's underneath yep. it. Yes. Very okay. cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very, very cool stuff to work with. And bonus, you would have the fun of getting to take something apart. I've always loved taking things apart with no intention of putting it back together functional. (laughs) No, no, no. It never goes back together again, you know. But again, you know, if you've got an old TV or monitor that's, you know, it's got a cracked screen, for instance, 
because uh, the uh, the LCD part that's cracked, you don't actually use that. It's behind there. It's between between the LEDs and your screen. You've got three little uh, panels. Again, I can't remember the actual technical name of these layers, but grab them, put them into a frame. You can use a picture frame, anything like that, and you'll have yourself a beautiful diffuser for your light. Wonderful. Well, Stuart, thanks for being mm. on this episode with a great pick and great opinions on these stories. Thank you for having me. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on, and uh, we'll have to have you back on uh, more frequently, uh, not let it yes. go so long as it had been in the past. <laughs> well, All right. fair, we didn't have thanks. a reliable computer. <laughs> well, now you do, so there's <laughs> yeah, no we'll excuses. Do, so, yeah. There you there go. We go. All right, everybody. Thanks anyway. for listening to this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. You can find the show notes, of course, at photogeekweekly.com. My website at doncom.ca. Stuart, your website is? It's uh, stuartwood.com with a S-T-E-W. Stuartwood.com. And, uh, and again, thanks, everybody. It's now time to get out and shoot. Shoot.